Good morning, church. If we don't have faith, what do we have? The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. So everything we do, we do by faith, even when the, uh, the things we see uh, don't seem to uh, lead us into believing. Uh, I think about Job, and despite what he was going through, he still, he still believed God. He said, uh, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And it's that kind of faith that, uh, that God is looking for. And today we're going to talk about worship and we're going to talk about water, uh, living water, very appropriate on such a rainy day. Walter informed me that uh, you may inadvertently be baptized by sprinkling today as the water comes down from the, the roof here. So uh, <laughs> not a doctrinal statement, just a fact. Uh, <laughs> let's get Bibles into everybody's hands. If you don't have a Bible, then put your hand up. The guys in the back will bring one to you. We're also going to turn off this light over here. Is that buzzing getting to anybody? We're all going to go, ah, yeah. So we're going to turn that light off so that, that, again, I'll be in the dark probably, but at least you'll be able to hear and not go home with your brain fried by some buzzing sound. Um, so Bibles are coming around. John chapter 4 is where we'll be today. John 4 and Jeremiah chapter 2. John 4, Jeremiah 2. If you don't know where those books are, you can look in your table of contents in your Bible for the uh, page number specific to your Bible that you have. John chapter 4, Jeremiah chapter 2. Let's pray and we'll see what John chapter 4 has for us. Lord, here we are, just again, Lord, sitting at your feet, knowing that our, our weeks are so busy. We're, we're like... Martha's all week from, the, from your word. We're like just running around and, and doing this and doing that and, and, and the world is making so many demands on us. And Lord, I pray that in our hearts, I know in my heart, I value this time. This time to just be focused on you, Lord. When, I, when I'm not at home trying to read and the phone is ringing and, and the emails are being checked and the, the chores need to be done, Lord, but just here we are. We're a captive audience. We're, we're together with each other. We're, we're praying that your spirit would be poured out, Lord. We're praying for, for what's genuine and real and not what we have to conjure up ourselves, Lord. We're desperate to see your, your power move through our fellowship, through love bubbling out of our hearts, through gifts of healing, through prayers, and through communion. Lord, we just here, we, we come boldly this morning saying we believe. We believe, Lord. And we're, we're praying that, that by your power we can be steadfast and immovable in these last days. Father, speak to us from your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. John chapter 4. Again, just by way of brief introduction, John is writing so that we will believe. And it's through believing that we have life. You, know, you see a lot of other people experiencing life and you go, well, why don't I have that life? Well, maybe there's still something in you that doesn't believe. I don't believe. You know, I'm not sure I can, I can believe that. Well, then you'll not experience the life, the life that God promises because that, that life is connected to not just a head belief, but what I would call an abandoning belief. A belief that causes me to abandon other things 
to embrace his word, to embrace who he is and what he says and all of that. Is that true? I think so. John chapter 4, uh, Jesus has already spoken. He's, he was in Jerusalem uh, for the Passover. He spoke to a, a religious Jew, an expert in the law named Nicodemus. And, and now he's uh, been baptizing. Actually, his disciples have been baptizing. Uh, there's been some confusion and some competition between the disciples of John uh, and, and the disciples of Jesus. And that's where we pick up. And we see uh, chapter 4 gives us the story, the account of a, uh, a woman who had uh, some, some difficult issues in her life, relationship issues. She was somewhat of a mess personally, and, and Jesus makes his way to her. John chapter 4 verse 1 begins with, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So it, word is spreading, you know, John's star is starting to dim and Jesus' star is, is shining brighter and brighter. This has caused some controversy. And when Jesus hears about the Pharisees knowing that you know, all these people are now coming not to John but to Jesus, uh, he leaves. He heads back up to the north toward Galilee. And he's been down in this, you know, more toward the south in Judea. So he's heading north, doesn't want to make a big stink about all of this, all the baptizing and all the, the competition. Um, so he graciously moves, moves his ministry up to, to Galilee, where his ministry becomes centered up there around the Galilee in a place called Capernaum. We haven't got there yet, though. We'll get there. But an interesting note in verse 4, uh, it says, but he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to go through Samaria. Now, to understand this and how significant this verse is, you have to understand a few things historically about the Jews and the Samaritans. Now, some of you may already know this, so it may be repeated information. But how many of you already know that the relationship between Jews and Samaritans was anything but loving? Yeah, that's true. Why? What happened? Well, the Samaria became the capital of the northern kingdom. There, Israel at one point in their history, got divided into two sort of two divisions, two separate groups. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. There was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And uh, in Jeroboam, who, who sort of started this false worship up in the north, was sort of behind, behind that. Again, false worship and, and alternative worship styles up north. And then, again, you had Judah in the south. Well, also up in the north is one of their enemies called the Assyrians. And the Assyrians uh, conquered Israel, the northern kingdom. And when the Assyri they, Assyrians were pretty, were pretty smart, they dissolved your identity. When they, attacked, when they conquered you, they dissolved your identity by taking the majority of the people from, the, from where you lived and deporting you. They would deport you somewhere. They'd put you somewhere else in, the, in some other nation that they'd conquered. They'd take you to Babylon or take you over here, take you over there. They'd deport you. And then they would take all the other people they conquered and bring them in to where you used to live. So now there's some of the people that live there and there's all these other people from different cultures and different backgrounds and different worship styles and different gods that they serve. Now they're all intermixing now in what used to be and what still is Israel or the northern kingdom. So now as time goes on, you can imagine what that created from a religious standpoint, can't you? Now there's, there's 
all of this, not only did they have this false worship that came from Jeroboam, the worship of the golden, golden calf that he, that he put up there, uh, but now you have all these people that worship other gods, and now the whole thing is just a, a worship conglomeration uh, that, that had existed there. So the Jews considered the Samaritans half-breeds. They had intermixed marriages with, with foreigners and all of this. It was, they, they didn't like that. That was, that was not good. So they kept their distance. And even when, uh, when the Samaritans offered to help the Jews rebuild their temple, they rejected the offer. And so the Samaritans said, eh, fine with you, we'll build our own temple. So they built it. So down in the south, you had the temple in Jerusalem. And in the north, then you had uh, their temple on Mount Gerizim that they built for their worship. So now you have these two distinct worship spots. So the Samaritans and the Jews, man, the Jews, they just kept their distance from each other. The Jews hated them. They were half-breeds. They were mongrels. And they had no, no um, uh, distinction or no dealings with them. So that's interesting that the Bible says Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Now, because of the relationship, the Jews would oftentimes, rather than going, now, it's like saying, uh, you know, I'm going to go to Farmville and I need to go through Fork Union. Well, if you're going to take Route 15, you need to go through Fork Union. It's a matter of fact. Now, heading north from where Jesus was to Galilee, you would pass right through Samaria. But that's not what most of the Jews did. See, to avoid stepping on Samaritan ground, they would go across the Jordan, head up the other side, and then cross back over because they didn't want to step foot in Samaria. But when we hear Jesus needed to go through Samaria, it wasn't like going to Farmville via Fort Union, was it? There was something else going on here. Jesus had scheduled a divine appointment. And that's, if you got the devotional, that's what I wrote about uh, he needs to go, kind of like, ah, I, some of you might say, if you, if you smoke or you have a habit of smoke, I need to get cigarettes. You know, they might not be anywhere around, but you, there's an internal drive that I need to get cigarettes, and you've got to go out of your way to get them. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but uh, just to build the idea. There's something internal in Jesus driving him the need to go through Samaria. And it's a woman whose name we don't know, interestingly. She remains nameless, but she's been affectionately called the woman at the well for, throughout Christian history. So he needs to go through Samaria. So verse 5 says, So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Isn't it interesting that John makes a note that, uh, that Jesus stops there? He was tired. He'd been walking a long time, walking a long way. He was tired. I mean, Jesus, in his humanity, got tired. He became just like we are, human. And in his humanity, he got tired. So on one hand, Jesus stops there because he's tired. But on the other hand, he stops there because he's got an appointment. So which is it? It's both. It's both. It's, it's both of these things. Sometimes what seems coincidental, you, you ever had that happen? Like you go, oh, what a coincidence that was. That was no coincidence. It's no coincidence that that's where Jesus gets tired and stops. I love to, I'm not great, I, I'm not great at keeping appointments sometimes. If I don't write it down, it doesn't exist in my notebook. I have a, a I have to keep careful notes because I have a lot of appointments these days. And sometimes I'll miss one. I'll get a call and oh, it just breaks my heart when I do it. Uh, where are you, Steve? What do you mean? I'm sitting here waiting for you. Oh man, I totally forgot. I missed the appointment. Yeah, but I'm the only, you, you guys miss appointments ever? 
Sometimes somebody helped me out. Maybe somebody missed an appointment sometimes. Ah. But the neat thing about this appointment and, and the, the appointment with God that I had in my life, maybe the appointment with God you had in your life, is God makes the appointment. The woman has no idea how her day, how her life is about to change in a moment. And I had an appointment like that. It was in a parking lot in Charlottesville. I never intended to meet God, but God had intended to meet me. Jacob in the Old Testament had never intended to wrestle with God, but God had intended to wrestle with him. And, and a, a few other examples I gave, lots through the Bible of div, what I call divine appointments. And, and maybe you think, well, you know, I'm just coming to church today because so-and-so invited me, a very natural thing. But what you don't know is that God has already preordained a divine appointment for you here today. So on one hand, yeah, I just went because someone invited me. But on the other hand, God had ordained an appointment for you today to hear him. And, and what we're about to read is going to speak deeply to you. And that's called a divine appointment. So he, uh, he comes to this place. There's a well there. It's a very deep well, 85, 100 feet deep. And it was a common place. It had been around a long time. This well had history. And it had been uh, operating and, and yielding its water for years and years and years. So he sits there by the well. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. It was noon. It was the middle of the day. Now, a lot of people say that's not typically the time when people would go draw water. That the fact that this woman comes at this time means that maybe she was trying to avoid other people. or There's no way to know that. So, you know, you may read that. I don't know. But nonetheless, the interesting thing about it is the disciples aren't there. Nobody else is at the well at that time because there's no doubt there's, you know, you, you go to, if there's a, a winter storm coming, you go to Walmart and everybody is there. We're buying milk and bread. So we're going to have soggy bread sandwiches when, during the snowstorm. Milk and bread. Or we'll make French toast or something. Um, so it's Jesus and this woman and they're, they're alone together there. Look at verse 7. The woman of, a woman of Samaria came to draw water and that sentence again is profound what was she thinking on the way i mean what was she thinking as she's going to draw water what's going through her mind you know i'm not certain but i don't think she's whistling a happy tune as she's going to draw water what's the need why is she going so late it's the middle of the day very hot i wonder as you and i do as we walk or drive or think just things are rolling through your mind regrets concerns, fears, and I am certain that as she's just walking to the well, she's just pondering her life, just as you and I might do, pondering her situation, pondering whatever happened that morning. And she has no idea how her day is going to change. She has no idea uh, who is she, she's going to meet that day and how this is going to transform the rest of her life. She was just minding her own business, just like many of us were when the Lord found us. God snuck up on me, man. He's sneaky. He snuck right up on me. I had no idea. Found me in a parking lot. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Now there's two things against her. Number one, she's a woman. Number two, she's a Samaritan woman. So just by the simple fact that she's a a woman, uh, it was very unculturally customary, uncustomary for a man to speak with at all a woman that he didn't know, a strange woman. He didn't know her, so they should not be speaking to one one another. But Jesus defies that. 
And the second thing she had against her was she was Samaritan. They should not be speaking to one another based on that as well. But yet, the next verse says, Jesus said to her. He speaks to her. Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then John gives us this commentary for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, it's, it's, in my Bible, the, uh, the quotation marks end right at the end of the, the question that the woman asked. Um, some have said maybe the Samaritan woman said this, others not, but it's there nonetheless. The Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That's, that's the, the issue of the day. They don't cross paths, they don't talk with, they don't share. Certainly, a Jewish rabbi would never drink from a Samaritan vessel. No way. It's unclean. And, and for them, unclean was contagious. So they just avoided anybody else. They wanted to keep their, their, themselves clean, ritually speaking. So they would just avoid anybody else. So no way would, would he drink, you know, according to custom, out of anything, any vessel. And she knew that. So she's right, like, what is going on here? Why is this guy talking to me? This is really strange. So how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan? You know, you have to, look, if you're going to live by the gospel... You have to be willing to talk to people that, um, that maybe others would say you shouldn't. You have to be willing to cross some boundaries, don't you? You have to be willing to, to cross some cultural boundaries. You have to be willing to cross maybe racial boundaries. You have to be willing to cross customary delineations that society sets up. Because Jesus talked to this righteous Jew who is an expert in the law, and now he's talking to this sort of uh, marginalized Samaritan woman who will find out really had issues with her relationship. She had some, some issues that she was struggling with. So, but he, he breaks down because the gospel is for her. Because what he has is not just for the Jews. It's for the Samaritans. It's for the Gentiles. It's for people in China. It's, you know, people say, well, you know. Christianity is just in a Western religion. No, it's not. It's an Eastern religion. It's a Middle Eastern religion. It's, an, it's a worldwide uh, relationship for everyone, for you sitting right here this morning, regardless of the color of your skin or the economic situation, the financial situation you find you're in, whether you're educated or not. What Christ has for you is for you. Verse 10, Jesus now answers her. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Oh, if you only knew the gift of God. Let me just say that fresh this morning to this congregation. Oh, if you only knew the gift of God. Some of you know the gift of God. Some of you have experienced the gift of God. But others... Well, you know, I just, I see what I see, and I know, you know, I hear people talk, but, oh, if you only knew the gift of God. So Jesus said, she doesn't, she doesn't know who he is, she doesn't recognize him, uh, you know, there's no way she would at this point. But if she had, she'd ask him for a drink, and, and the mention here is of living water. Do you understand that living water is the opposite of stagnant water? You, you don't want to offer someone, hey, I'm so thirsty, here, have some pond water, just, you know, just pick the scum off and there's some bugs in there, but here you go. Stagnant water is dead water. Dead. 
spring water is flowing water. It's living water. It's life. It's, you know, if you've ever been, anybody here ever been dehydrated? You ever compete in any athletics or just you're not drinking enough water? You get dehydrated. And that, that's really a bad situation when you get dehydrated. That's not good for your body. It makes your body do kinds of crazy things. You get really fatigued and sometimes it makes you throw up and it's just bad for you. And so living water is necessary for life. It revitalizes, it rejuvenates, it gives life. You, you die if you don't drink water, right? But is Jesus talking about physical water? No, but just like when, she told, when he told Nicodemus about being born again, the temptation is for us to think, to, to think on the natural level. Nicodemus said, well, how can I be born again? I can't crawl back into my mother's womb. And she's thinking, you know, living water, just a spring water. So the woman said to him, verse 11, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. I mean, how are you going to, what are you going to, scuba dive? Are you going to get it, jump in there and climb back? There's no way. You can't. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep, about 100 feet deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you, so now she's really starting to question him. I mean, who, who do you think you are saying that you're going to get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? I mean, this well's got history. This well has been producing for many, many, many years consistently and reliably. And, and now you come and you say you've got, some, you know, you've, you've got a source of water that you can give to me. I, I've got the best there is. I've got the best well in town. At least that's what she thought. And, and that's, again, it's a very human mindset. You know, people are, are very cautious or hesitant to, to hear about what someone else uh, wants to say or, or what someone else has to offer. You know, we get into our, to our thing and we think that that's the best there is. And, well, let me read one, let me read one more thing and then we're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 2. So Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, the, the, the well water, the spring water. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him, in him a, founda- a fountain, excuse me, a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Whoa, now this is not talking about physical, literal water. There's something else going on here. This is a spiritual thing he's saying. Now, do me a favor. Let's go over to uh, John, excuse me, to Jeremiah chapter 2. You've marked it. Jeremiah is dealing with people that have, have just fallen into, walked into idolatry. They've turned away from God and they're, they're worshiping false gods and they're worshiping all kinds of places. And, and look at what verse 13 says in Jeremiah chapter 2. In verse 13, it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, that's number one, the fountain of living waters. God says, I am the fountain of living waters. We'll talk about that in a minute. So that's the first thing. They had forsaken. So the first thing is, people forsake God. In America, we're forsaking God. There's, there's, there's the remnant of those that believe, but as a country, we're, we're looking other places for help. We're looking other places for wisdom. We're looking other places for life. We've forsaken God. So when you forsake God, that creates a void. Because you still want to have life. You still want to 
feel important. You still want to do something. You still want to, you know, uh, live. And so you find other things that you think will give you the life you're looking for. And that's what they did. The first thing, they, fors- they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So they would, out of the ground or in the ground, they would dig out these holding tanks, like a rain barrel, but it was out of the, out of the rock, out of the limestone, and then they would plaster it on the inside to try to help make it waterproof. But all it takes is, uh, you know, a little crack in, in the earth, and guess all that water, that, the rain water that had been saved there, the earth drinks it right up and it's gone. So they would come to the cistern to get water, and guess what was there? Nothing. And they went away thirsty. And so now as we go back to, to think about what Jesus is saying to this woman, look, this water is physical water. You'll drink it. You'll thirst again. You know, we've got to keep drinking. Got to keep drinking the physical water. But Jesus talks about the water that he can give that will make a person to the point where they, they never thirst. They'll never thirst. What are the, what, what are, where are those of us that have, those of you that have, a forsaken God in your life. Um, or maybe someone you know has forsaken God. Where is it that people look for life? I mean, you can look for life in all kinds of different places. Some people look for life in religious practice. We don't often talk about that one. That somehow going through the rituals is going to give me life. And I think, man, that is just dead. When I was in India... Or excuse me, Nepal, years ago, I was at uh, the Hindu, there's Hindu temples, there's Buddhist temples, and they have the, the prayer wheels, these big wheels um, that they just spin, and the more they spin them, the more the prayers go up, and I just watch the people. And I learned, I learned the emptiness of idolatry, the emptiness of false religion. I just watched them go around in circles, spinning these wheels with just, just glazed over faces, going through the motions of spinning the wheels. What a difference between what they have and what we have. This, this, you know, Jesus is talking about something very important. If you ha- he says, the water that I give will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So in other words, Jesus says, I'm going to put the fountain, the source, in you. If the source is in you, you never have to go draw again. You don't have to draw on... Uh, what people are saying about you don't have to draw on that drug you don't have to draw on that addiction you don't have to draw on those relationships that somehow you're trying to find life and and manipulating people to to give you life somehow you're trying to get it from your spouse or get it from your kids just to feel significant and important and, and meaningful and none of those things trust me you know the party lifestyle it's empty the material lifestyle it's empty anything else that you're going to find is a broken cistern it leaks you can't go back there time and time again and find life there but jesus says i'm going to put well turn to john chapter 7 just real quickly over one page or two pages depending on how big your bible is john 737 because this one lands like an airplane 737 On the last day, the the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, 
as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. There's a parallel there, I think, similar idea. So this, now what does it say next? He spoke of what? But this he spake concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus had not yet was not yet glorified. So this is speaking of Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit. When God pours His Spirit into your life, you now have the fountain of life dwelling in you. And out of that, just things start to bubble over. I mean, when we're walking in that. You know, when, when we're not quenching the Spirit, when we're not thinking more about all of our problems, when we're, when we're drawing from that fountain, the Spirit of God, uh, trusting in the Word of God, you know, there's... Just, just, did you ever, have you ever had, a, have you had the experience where it just, you just wake up and I, I know life is hard, but there's just something in you that's just like love, it's just pouring out of you. It just got, you just love people. I was talking to a guy uh, here in, in, from the church that just is going through a fresh experience with this. Just God's grace poured into his life and just bubbling over. Spirit of God, this is the, the source. If you have the source in you, then, then nothing else is going to satisfy you. That's where you get your satisfaction. Are we together on this? Do you, you understand what Jesus is saying to her? So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. I mean, that'd be great. I'd love to hang up my bucket, you know, and, and not have to come out to this well every day. You know, around the world, people's lives are completely uh, engrossed in just surviving. They have to go to the well every day to get... We don't have running water like we have. But their whole existence is just going and, and getting food and going and getting water and prepare all day long. That's what they do. And so she says, man, I would be glad to not have to come down to the well anymore. So where, where is this water? Tell me how I can get it. She's still missing the point, isn't she? She's not quite getting it. She'll get it by the end. So Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Now, that seems kind of random, doesn't it? But you know what he has just done? Jesus has just put his finger on her broken cistern. He has just identified for her. So he's leading her very gently, but, but very uh, in, intentionally to receive the living water he's just promised. But there's something getting... If you're still going to the broken cistern, you, you can't have the living water because it's... They're just, they're opposites. You've got to believe and you've got to address and deal with where you are. You you can't serve two masters, right? So (laughs) he says, go, I'll tell you what, just go get your husband and bring him here. You know, it seems so random, but it's not. The woman answered, her, her, she, like something happened in her brain when he said that, because she knows, he, she doesn't know he knows, but she knows. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And she was right. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that, you spoke truly. And right now, her jaw is laying on the desert floor. And she is just, her eyes are bugging out of her head. And she's like, how did he know that? He's not from around here. So it's an interesting, there's, there's a lot more I would love to know about this. 
Why did she have five husbands? Now, a woman wasn't really permitted to divorce her husband, so five guys had put her, put her away. Five guys had said, you know, sorry, we, we're, we're over. It's through with us. Now, but we don't know all for the same reason. Maybe a couple of them died. Maybe she's a bad cook. I mean, we don't know what's going on. But uh, nonetheless, but I think the indication is when he says to her, uh, and, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. I think the indication is there's something uh, sexually, uh, there's an intimida- the, the intimation that, that she's got some issues with relationships. That's what I think. I can't say, thus saith the Lord, but she's had five failed marriages, and now she's got to live in. And I'm, you know, I don't blame her for being hesitant, but she's living in sin. And we don't know whether this live-in is somebody else's husband. I mean, she could be living in adultery right now, but we don't know. And here's the thing. Jesus knew all, he knew that about her. And this is what blows her mind. When she begins to evangelize, she says, come and meet a man that told me everything about myself. Told me, told me everything I ever did. Look, there's nothing that you've been involved in. Because some of you deal with shame over your past. I, don't have, I wasn't born Pastor Steve. I didn't come out with a Bible in my hand. I've got a past. You've got a past. And, and some of you grew up in, in church in a godly home. Praise the Lord for that. But some of you didn't. And you've been through some hard road. And you think, what? And I, I can't tell you how many people I talk to and they think that, that God doesn't want anything to do with them because of the shame and the guilt over their past. And here we have, Jesus said he needed to go through Samaria. This woman, he needed to contact her. He needed to know that there was a place she could find satisfaction besides in relationships with men. Always looking for, you know, to, to feel needed, to feel significant, because, uh, to feel beautiful or whatever, because of what men could do for her. And he says, I'm going to give you some living water. Something that will satisfy. So, a lot we don't know, but what we do know uh, is that she was now even living in sin. And Jesus knew that about her, and yet he goes to her uh, not just in, despite that, but because of that, I believe. Because he came to, to seek and save that which was lost. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. That's very perceptive. Our fathers... So now she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, that's where they're standing, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And this, again, I, I alluded to this before. I won't re-explain that. So there's two places to worship. So the first thing I want you to notice is it seems so interesting because she seems to dodge the question, right? It's about, you know, go get your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. Well, you're right. You've got five guys that, you know, have been your husband. And I'm really trying to avoid making a joke about five guys, pizza, and fries. But uh, uh, so I'm, I'm not going to go there. But this is just the way my brain works. I'm just, it's, it's who your pastor is. I'm sorry. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. I can't help it. Uh, anyway, see now every time I say five guys, you're thinking downtown mall. But <laughs> Barracks Road, right, that, there's one there too. So, um, but she seems to dodge the issue and she brings it on to worship. But I think they're connected. Because I think that it's likely that she's forsaken God. Why? Possibly because of the reason many have forsaken God, because of confusion. Look, 
We worship here on Mount Gerizim. You guys say it's right to worship down in Jerusalem. I don't know which is right. I just gave up on the whole thing. I got confused and said, forget about the whole thing. You ever had that experience yourself? You know, which denom- there's this denomination, there's that denomination, there's this religion, there's that religion. Everybody seems to disagree. No one can get along. Forget about the whole thing must be a farce. I'm done. And you forsake God. And I think that's what maybe she had done. And she had forsaken God, and so in the absence of God and a true relationship with him, she had, she had found other places to try to, to find satisfaction. So, he, so maybe she, her question is genuine. Hey, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You Jews say that Jerusalem's the place to, where one ought to worship. So where's the place? Where's the place we worship? Well, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So we've got to take a minute uh, and really look at this, because this is about, I mean, this is, this passage is absolutely vital for the church because again first reason because worship can be confusing because there's these different competing and conflicting ideas on 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 worship and look our generation has been really sold uh, sold out on on worship and i don't mean sold out on in a good way we say hey we're we're going to go to church and we're going to worship the lord and we mean by that we're going to sing some songs and you can sing some songs and never worship the Lord. And we've, the, the other problem is not confusion, but compartmentalization. That's a big word. Comp- we are great at compartmentalizing our life. Well, when I come to the school and, and, and Sunday morning, that's worship. But then when I go out there, that's my time. That's my life. So we're very used to, just like the woman, where is the place to worship? Jesus said it's not about where. It's about who. Worship has more to do with the condition of the worshiper than, than the building or the place. Look, here we are. I'm glad that this verse is in here. Otherwise, we'd be in big trouble, wouldn't we? I mean, we're in a middle school, gymnasium. There's no, hey, I don't know if you've noticed, there's no stained glass in here. I mean, I, maybe, the, yeah, he's right, there's not. Yeah, there's no stained glass and there's no fancy building but, uh, but can we worship the Lord here? You bet we can. You bet we can. And I'm thankful for that. Because there's a lot of misconceptions about, well, worship has to happen in this place. Well, we, you know, we've worshipped the Lord by the river when we used to pray and, and sing and, and give thanks to God down by the river. We've worshipped the Lord in an old elementary school. We've worshipped the Lord in, in the Fork Union Military Academy indoor track. I mean, I've worshipped the Lord doing dishes at home. Because the first time the word worship is used in the Bible is when Abraham takes his son Isaac to go and sacrifice. Me and the boy, we're going to go and worship. So worship involves sacrifice. So he's got to clear this up. He says, listen, it's not about the place. This is good news. Because they were prohibited from, they didn't deal with the Jewish temple. This is, ra- this is radical to them. You know, the, the temple is the place to worship. 
He says, you worship what you do not know. I mean, and that's another, another problem for a lot of people. They worship, and they worship, and they have no idea what they're doing. Just going through some motions, worshiping in tradition, worshiping in, in ceremony, worshiping in ritual, and, and those things in and of themselves are wrong. But Jesus said, people draw close to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You can go through all the motions. You can, go, you can do your morning, as I call it, the motions of devotions. You can go through the motions. You can do the thing and still not worship. So what's the deal? First of all, verse 23, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, so there's false worshipers, but the ones who really understand and worship will worship the Father, not where, but how, in spirit and truth. To worship God in spirit. The word just simply means breath. Or, or, and it comes to mean the breath of life. And I think it, 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 and this is not the spirit, spirit of God. This is spirit, man's spirit. You know, worship God in your spirit. Meaning that I'm not just going through the motions. It means it's inside. It's internal. It's not about external, where I am or what I'm doing externally, the, the rituals I'm participating in. It's about an attitude of worship inside. It's about something in me. That's like, you can be here bodily and, and your mind and your heart are just not here at all. You're, you're just here because someone brought you here or because you do it because that's what you do. You just go to church Sunday morning. And it has nothing to do with worship. You're just here. No relationship there. No presence of God there for you. So the first place is you must worship in spirit, internally versus externally. And in truth. Aletheia is the Greek word and it means in what is true. If you're not worshiping God according to who he says he is, then you're in idolatry. This is why for centuries in early church history, as heresies developed, they laid the foundation through the creeds that they developed to explain and describe exactly who Jesus is. His humanity, his divinity, the trinity, all of these things. Why? Because to worship God of your own making is idolatry. So look, you can't come and say, well, I'm not, I'll worship this God that I make up. And that's what, we're, that's what the church is doing, isn't it? We're making up our own God. Well, I think God likes this and God doesn't like that and God never would send anybody to hell and hell doesn't exist, we don't think anymore. I think that, but you know, that's been going around in the church. So we're making this God and then we're claiming to go and worship him. And Jesus says that's not worship, that's idolatry. You have to know, this is why studying God's word is so important. You have to know the God that you're worshiping. Otherwise, you're not worshiping him. And so you have those that, that, this is who, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. This is what God's looking for. We talk about seeker-friendly churches. It's not people that are seeking. It's God that's seeking. God, and, and I think He's seeking this now more than ever, or at least as much as ever. People that are worshiping Him in spirit and in truth. Not in tradition and ritual. And again, those things aren't wrong in and of themselves. For God is spirit. See, this is one final thing. Worship is directed by who God is. God is spirit. He's not a statue. He, he's not that, that, something that you can touch and feel in that way. He's spirit. And so we worship him in spirit and in truth. 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. But the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So he just lays it off. I'm he. I am. That's me. And so we'll leave our story halfway between, in the middle, and we'll pick it up next Sunday and see what the result is of this woman's encounter, her divine appointment with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.